One year gone, and the door opens. The door opens, and one year gone. And now, too much time in the dark. Your head will collapse, but there's nothing in it. Good King Vincent shall prevail, and Zaysha shall tremble like a leech upon the very brain. It grows fatter by the day, but I shall scrape it off. Yet remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. Wherefore did he place the crown upon his head? The fault is mine. It was I who opened the door. So, dog, forgive me. Oh, where is my mind? Oh, out in the water, swimming, staring at a dead fire in the cold room. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed. The safest road to hell is a gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Roman Cyronead, Roman Cyronead, Roman Cyronead. <laughs> the following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. The last chapter picks up in the aftermath of the battle with the two Ragudesas, which resulted in Cole's tragic death. The party is more hungry than ever for vengeance against the people who put them in this situation, but vengeance will have to wait. While the companions say their goodbyes to the fighter, Jace explores further in the cavern, looking for treasure. He finds some, hidden behind a rock in a little space beyond the arachnid's lair. We spend the next little while in a flashback to a scene that happened 20 years ago. The former residents of this cave complex, a band of robbers led by a man named Machi Swin, listen to their leader debut his new song. We then return to the present, but not to the PCs. Carrick Malmar has opened the tomb of something ancient and strange. Within, he finds an artifact. It is a crown that once belonged to the kings of Camertine, and before that, who knows? Whatever enchantments it possesses, as he places it upon his brow, the powers of evil in and around Silmoral take notice. By the time we rejoin the companions, they have already safely escaped the dangers of the Brentwood. But instead of turning north to Silmoral, Yellowfly decides to lead his party south to the town of Brannon. Going home immediately would be too dangerous, he explains, and in Brannon, they can heal and take their time in making a plan. 
Before continuing on to town, they stop for a short rest, and Jace shares what he found hidden beyond the Ragudessa's cavern. There's a heavy handful of coins, but even more interesting is something that Catsbane believes was the property of a reclusive Silmorian sorceress named Eliora. I think I agree with Catsbane that the tube is probably not trapped. He's not the reckless type. I'm sure he knows what he's doing. That said, this is a game with danger at every turn, right? So I'll say there's a 10% chance that the tube is trapped. If that does happen to be the case, it would probably indicate that there was something extra valuable inside. We already know that there's something in there worth taking and worth hiding. Why else would Machi Swin have bothered? Okay, D percentile, where are you? Ah, here we go. Here's a somewhat cool looking but disappointingly light set of metallic dice. Supposedly, they are metal-plated, but I'm not sure I believe that. Anyway, here's the roll. 63. The tube is not trapped. Okay, so it has something valuable in it, but not extremely valuable. That means my idea of putting a wand in there makes less sense. Hmm. Okay, let's make up a little d6 table on the spot. On a 1, the tube will contain a non-magical scroll. It could be a map, or a love letter, or a will, something like that. On a 2, it will be a magical scroll with a first-level spell. A 3 means the same, but with a second-level spell. A 4 means one of each first and second level. A 5 means a third-level spell. And finally, a 6 means that there is a wand inside after all. Ready? I rolled a 4. That's one of each first and second level. Hey, not bad. No reason to wait. Let's find out what they are right now. As with level ups, if I get a roll that duplicates a spell used in Season 1, I'll create a special exotic spells table and roll again. Same goes for the spell, read magic. But if I roll up a duplicate of a spell he already knows, well, that's just hard luck. Rolling a d12 for the first level spell. 5. Light. That spell was used extensively in Season 1, so it looks like I will be making that special exotic spells table. We'll get to that in a second, but I'm going to roll the second level spell while the book is in my lap. Here we go. 11. Web. Huh. Interesting. I have a few ideas about that, but we need to make that first level exotic spells table first. I'll just handpick six spells from the AD&D Player's Handbook. They are Burning Hands, Identify, Featherfall, Detect Undead, Armor, and Unseen Servant. Well, this is exciting. They're all cool in their own way. Here's the roll. A one. So what exactly does Burning Hands do? The rules say that when the magic user casts the spell, a jet of fire shoots from their fingertips. The caster sends out flame jets five feet long in a horizontal arc of about 120 degrees in front of them. Any creature caught in the area of flame suffers 1d3 points of damage, plus two points for each level of experience of the spellcaster, to a maximum of 1d3 plus 20 points of fire damage. There is a save for half damage. Flammable materials touched by the fire burn. Oh, I almost forgot. You might be wondering if Jace pocketed anything of value when he found the package originally. You'll remember that I rolled for it. The result of that roll was a 9 on 2d6 plus 2 for a total of 11, indicating that there is, after all, honor among thieves, and Jace probably opened the package without even having any intention of keeping its contents for himself. Chapter 33, Part 1 Day 108. Evening. Party status. Yellowfly. 14 of 26 hit points. Shawnee. 7 of 16 
Catsbane, eight of eight. Spells available. There are no spells available. If one looked closely at the sign for the Spinner's Wheel Inn and Tavern, they could tell that it had been painted over. The place was originally owned by a retired shepherd named Parkins, and he had called it the Shepherd's Crook. But when he passed away, his son inherited the business and changed the name in the hopes that it would attract a more wholesome clientele. It did. The folks who now frequented the wheel were good, hard-working and simple shepherds who tended their flocks in the warm seasons and made preserves and handcrafts and spun wool in the winter. Parkins' son, Keat, was a red-cheeked, red-nosed man with a girth that rivaled his height. He supped and drank with his patrons nightly, happily burning through his profits on bards, dancers, and other entertainers, and by frequently offering free rounds for his friends. Though he seldom had business in Brandon, Yellowfly had known Keat for years and had been to the wheel several times before. There was an establishment with a more upscale clientele in the middle of town, but Yellowfly wanted no part of their company. Besides, the wheel was situated at Brandon's north end, and so it was the closest source of everything the companions wanted. Warmth, food, and drink. No sooner had they entered the lively tavern than the sanguine and smiling owner bellowed out Yellowfly's name and rushed up to wrap him in a bear hug. Yellowfly! After that came a dozen introductions. Keat announced their presence to his friends as though they were royalty. Free food and drink followed thereafter, with lots of locals coming to their table to ask news of the city and simply to enjoy the novelty of a new set of faces in their midst. Of particular interest was the loot Catsbane carried. After a while, a shy-looking man with a mop of ginger hair asked if he might try it. Catsbane handed him the instrument and the man started to strum, pausing now and again to make small adjustments to the tuning pegs. For an old and neglected instrument, it produced quite a sweet sound. But the young wizard only stayed long enough to get some warm food inside him. Keat had a big cauldron of lamb pottage with onions, cooking right at the hearth in the main room, and the place smelled wonderfully of it. Still, he was much too excited by Jace's scroll to sit and drink and make small talk with strangers. As soon as he was able, he excused himself, paid for a private room on the second floor, and disappeared for the evening. Keat's wife gave him his pick of the rooms. Few folk used the spinner's wheel for lodging during the winter. But while the upstairs was almost empty, the main floor's tavern was full. Tankard after tankard of ale were drained at their table after the meal, and the three remaining companions proceeded to get roaringly drunk. Things got even wilder when the crowd convinced the amateur lutist to give them a song. He only knew one, he told them. It didn't matter. One was better than none. Again, the ginger-haired man protested, saying he had a voice like a raven's. But the crowd was already on its feet. With mugs in the air, they promised to do all the singing. One of the men produced a set of pipes, someone else a homemade drum. And so, nervously at first, and then with more confidence, he did. Sleep beneath their mud.
The crowd seemed never to tire of the song and made the lutist play it over and over, pushing mugs of ale at him between performances. The delivery worsened, but the sounds of laughter and cheer expanded until they filled the room to the rafters. At one point, Shawnee was pulled into the crowd where she danced and danced, first in the arms of one shepherd and then another. By some miracle, she did not become sick as she twirled and spun about. Later, when every last bad memory and any vestige of reason had been drowned, she selected the biggest shepherd in the room, a bear of a man, whose name she didn't even know, and went home with him. Eventually, Jace and Yellowfly slurred their intention to stay the night to Keat's wife, and she helped them to a room next to Catsbane's. With the exception of the young wizard, the companions slept through the morning, waking only after noon the next day, and feeling like their heads had been used as jousting dummies. If he had been bothered by all the noise the night before, Catsbane was wise enough not to complain about it now. Are you ready for a journey into the unknown recesses of what lies beyond your perception? Where's my fucking aunt? I never even got to meet up with her that night. How did you find the blood then? Will you heed the call of Cthulhu? That's not true. Cthulhu is sleeping. We are that Cthulhu John, a real play 7th edition Call of Cthulhu podcast. I'm a navy gravy baby. <laughs> Join us for mystery and the mind-bending atrocities of the uncaring cosmic mythos. Stuffs that thing in there, kicks the body in the face, makes sure it trunk closes. <laughs> <laughs> Try to keep your bearings if you must, but sanity is overrated. <laughs> Well, I think the PCs had a night to remember, or that is, they would have, if the ale hadn't washed away any memory of it. Now that's not true for Catsbane, of course, who sat out the party and chose study over revelry. To be fair, he had a pretty compelling reason to want to hit the books, with two new spells that he may try to copy. To succeed in the transcriptions for each spell, he must pass a successful intelligence check. If he fails, he may not try again until the next level. If he succeeds, the scroll will immolate, but he will thenceforth permanently have the spell available in his own spellbook to memorize. Let's make his roll for the first level spell, Burning Hands. Since Catsbane's intelligence score is a 15, he will need to roll that number or under on a d20. Here's the roll. A 9. He transcribes the spell correctly, knowing he has done it right when the scroll burns away harmlessly in his hand. Next is the second level spell, Web. Another roll of 15 or under means he can get it. Here goes. <laughs> a 15 on the nose. He just barely manages to do it without making an error, and the second scroll turns to ash as well. I think I know what made the difference between understanding Webb and failing. Having observed Soro the Mad, combined with his research at the Temple of the Sacred Flame, Catsbane knows that the source of the magic for this spell is, ultimately, demonic. He's had his suspicions, and now he is sure. Infernal powers are at large in Silmoral. What's more, he has begun to harness them. The thought is thrilling and terrifying in equal measure. Magic has always been a dangerous pursuit, he knows that. But here he is tampering with energies he does not fully understand. And he can feel it, calling to him. There's more power here for the taking. If he were to just reach out and take it, the temptation is too much for him. Today is a level up episode for Gatsbane. It is for Shawnee too, and we'll get to her shortly. But the young mage, sitting alone by candlelight in the rented room, 
and feeling the thrum of humanity coming up through the floorboards beneath him, manages to touch something otherworldly and infernal. For reaching level 4, Catsbane will get new hit points, a d4. A 4! Perhaps it's true that the dark side is stronger. Stat increase rolls are next. Strength. A 5. Intelligence. Another 5. How about wisdom? And I've got a 3. Dexterity? A 1. Constitution. A 6. There it is. He is fortified by the new power and knowledge. Charisma. A 1. Now for the most exciting part. As Catsbane reaches out into the arcane spaces in his mind, eager for more, he encounters several shadowy entities, each of which tries to entice him with a different gift. He finds one such entity with an offering he cannot resist, and accepts. The creature gives him... A five on the die is the spell... Oh, holy smokes, it's invisibility. No wonder Catsbane succumbs to temptation. As to what he offers the entity in return for this power, well, that's between the man and the demon, and is not for us to know. That was kind of intense, but there's more, because Shawnee, who had a different kind of all-night-long adventure, returns the next day, just a little bit changed. Although her hangover makes her feel awful physically, the catharsis of the previous evening has actually made her stronger than ever. Today she reaches level 5, her roll for new hit points. A 2 on a d4, plus 1 for her constitution bonus is 3, making a new total of 19. Still a respectable number, to be fair. Stat increase rolls are next. Strength. A 5. Intelligence. A 1. Wisdom is next. A 2. Is it greedy of me to want another dexterity bonus? Ah, a 5. So close. Constitution. A 2. Uh-oh. Charisma. Yeah, I've rolled a 5. No stat increases for Shawnee this go-around. Not her finest hour, I suppose. As a consolation, her thieves' skills go up roughly 5% across the board. And perhaps best of all, she finally gets an attack bonus. In BX, these bonuses tend to jump up, so she goes from no bonus to a plus two. Now, with missile weapons, because of her dexterity and the Lord Rabbit's gloves, she'll have a whopping plus four. Not too bad at all. Chapter 33, Part 2, Day 109, Morning. Carrick was alone in his tower. Well, he wasn't really alone. There was the mangy one-eyed cat who followed him everywhere, and a black spider that always seemed to be around. A weird blue-eyed raven was perched on his windowsill and the corpse of his last apprentice was hidden in the lower chamber closet. He hadn't meant to kill her, but she had vexed him so, with her questions about his absence, and why could she not keep to her own damn business? He would dispose of the body at a later date, or not. He especially regretted killing her, because he was all but certain that she had stolen his little dwarven jewel, the one he used to guard the stairs. Had she taken anything from here, too, then? Well, he couldn't very well demand answers from her now, could he? Just then, the half-blind cat leapt on his table and hissed at him. He swiped at it with his arm. Be gone, you awful thing. The part of Carrick that could still be called human despised the cat. The spider and the raven were hateful to him as well. 
but it was the part of him that wore the crown that made the decisions now, at least most of the time. Occasionally, the real Carrick managed to regain control of his thoughts and deeds, but rarely, and only for a few moments. He had not come here to see if his apprentice had robbed him. There was something he needed, but the thing in his mind seemed intent on preventing him from remembering. Where is my mind? He muttered feebly, cupping his face in his hands and then drawing his fingers straight down. He stumbled across the room, into the morning light that spilled in through the window, and then he remembered. It was only a glimpse of the idea, but his possessor could not keep it from him this time. Infernal parasite! I will cut you out if I must! The cat was back on the table, and it hissed at him again. The raven cawed in response, and when Carrick tried to swat it, it flew away. Now he was standing fully in the warm beam of morning light, and almost immediately, he felt the being within him shrink away. Oh, you do not like the daylight. Huh? With renewed confidence, and now fully cognizant and aware, the archmage grabbed the spine of a tome on his bookshelf and pulled the heavy volume free. He threw it at the half-blind cat, who nimbly and easily sprang out of the way. But Carrick was not interested in the book. He kept a jeweled dagger hidden in the bookshelf here. An enchanted dagger. It had a hilt that was covered in green scales of enamel, a crossguard made of gold, and a fuller inlaid with mother of pearl. The scaled handle was in the form of a curved lizard, with a reptilian head forming the pommel. It was a beautiful blade, and sharp as a razor without ever needing the stone. But that was not all. It was an enchanted blade, and this is why Carrick wanted it. He held it aloft. You cannot have my soul, demon! Ozenra! As Carrick spoke the command word, the dagger began to glow as though somehow lit from within. Prismatic rays lanced forth from it in all directions, and the archmage exulted in triumph as he felt the creature in his mind thrash in agony. The knife had the power to steal and temporarily hold magic from the wielder's foe, and Carrick had used it on himself. Now, knowing the reprieve would not last long, he turned the blade around and prepared to plunge it into his own heart. Death was preferable than to remain the puppet of the creature that possessed him. I'll not let you win, he spat. And then, before his confidence fled, he slammed the blade into his chest. <clears throat> but the tip stopped a fraction of an inch away from his skin, as though it had met with an invisible steel breastplate. Oh. His elbow flexed, and his arm snapped out straight. Oh. The blade flew free of his hand and sailed across the room, striking a second bookcase and clattering to the floor. No! I cannot allow it! cried Carrick. Involuntarily, he threw his own body hard against the wall. He heard something crack in his shoulder before he fell to the floor. Jaw clenched in pain and concentration, he willed himself to crawl back into the sunlight. Once again, the rider in his mind retreated. He picked himself up, unsteady on his feet, as though drunk. Once again he spoke, but this time it was a whisper. You may not have my soul, demon. Grasping onto whatever was left of his own free will, Carrick hurled himself out the window. <gasps> he fell and fell. The mage tower of Whitestone Castle was 60 feet tall from the foundation to the turret's tip. However, it overlooked the cliffs, and so Carrick plummeted 170 feet, with his robes flapping about him like a flag in a hurricane before he struck the foamy rocks far, far below.
On impact, his neck snapped and he died instantly while the surf came in to mingle its salt with his blood. And eventually, even the crabs came to investigate. One hour later, the thing that had once been Carrick stood up and swept the crustaceans from its body. It tried to put its head on straight, but it would not remain in place and lolled to the side. So be it, thought Azorzul, before he began the slow walk back up to Whitestone Castle. Thanks for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to help out, there are loads of ways to do so. You can recommend it online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, the Pendulum World Building Tool, or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate and review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks to everyone who has taken the time to support the show. I'd like to take a moment now to read one of your kind reviews. This one is from the Podcast Addict site and was written by Macmillan Art. Macmillan Art writes, Came to this through Billowing Hilltop recommendation. A beaut mix of D&D, rules, and story with some great characters. Loving the brutality and knife-edge survival of the first edition rules. It has the feel that the early sessions of Walking Dead had when anyone was fair game. I'm hooked. Thanks so much, Macmillan Art. I've never seen Totem compared to The Walking Dead before. But yeah, I get it. And I'm flattered. Thank you. Also thanks to the guys at the Billowing Hilltop. They've been championing the show since the beginning. Amazing guys. You know who else is amazing? My voice talent. This episode has some exceptional work, too. Both of these actors managed to give me chills with their performances of this season's two most powerful and tortured wizards. T.T. Benjamin from the Game Woven podcast plays Daenor perfectly, while Carrick Melmar, well, the late Carrick Melmar, is voiced just as brilliantly by Josh of Mudbeggar Games. It must be two-for-one awesome wizard day today. Thanks, guys. If listeners want to get in touch with me, I'm at Manticore Tale on Twitter or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. And there's always email, taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. Finally, I keep a blog where I post all kinds of show and RPG-related stuff, like art, maps, tables, crafts, and show notes. You can find it at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. The good friends of Jackson Elias are Scott Dawood, Paul Fricker and Matthew Sanderson. And together they talk on their podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and weird fiction, as well as other horror role-playing games. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or head over to blasphemoustomes.com.